the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Tyvel, and I'm joining you all here in South Africa. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Allie Bernison. Hey, everyone. I'm Allie, and I'm with PCI in Los Angeles. If you enjoy the Peace Catalyst podcast, please do us a favor and take some time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, thank you all for doing that. Um, So, you know, we're in the midst of our series called Becoming the Beloved Community, Restoration and Healing in the Midst of Division. And this is rooted in the historical origin of the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King Jr., who popularized the term. And um, this concept of becoming the beloved community is what's framing our conversations as we talk to people whom we call peace builders, who are involving themselves in the ministry of reconciliation, interrupting and challenging oppression, and holding firmly to a vision of justice, restoration, peace, and healing for all members of a community. So this week, we are talking to John Huckins, who is a pastor and the co-founding director of the Global Global Immersion Project, which is a peacemaking training organization helping individuals and communities move toward conflict, equipped to heal rather than to win. After significant international travel and study in the Middle East, John focuses much of his writing and speaking on peacemaking, local-slash-global engagement, and activating the church as an instrument of peace in our world. He writes for numerous publications, including USA Today, Red Letter Christians, Sojourners and Relevant is a contributing author to multiple books, and he has written three books himself. Those are Mending the Divides, Creative Love in a Conflicted World, Thin Places, Six Postures for Creating and Practicing Missional Community, and lastly, Teaching Through the Art of Storytelling. John regularly speaks at churches, universities, and conferences. He has his master's from Fuller Theological Seminary in Theology and Ethics, Wow, so honored to have John with us today. I know we've already learned so much from him um, as a part of Peace Catalyst, and we use a lot of you know his content coming from the Global Immersion Project for our own learning and peacemaking, and especially in our um, collaborative Christian peacebuilding network. So really honored to have him with us today. And um, I just want to share our peace quote of the week, which is from Brenda Salter McNeil um, in her book, Roadmap to Reconciliation, Moving Communities into Unity, Wholeness, and Justice. And it says, but if we're not careful, it is quite possible and tempting to be more in love with the idea of reconciliation than to actually engage in the actual work of reconciliation, the arduous, painful, and messy marathon work of reconciliation. That's the pivotal question we must ask. Are we more in love with the idea of following Jesus than actually following Jesus, including to and through some difficult areas? Such a good peace quote, truly. I, um, yeah, it's, I feel like it's a convicting one too, Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. um, cause the vision is great and the vision of same with, you know, as we've been talking about through this entire series, the vision of beloved community is, I mean, we can all get on board with that, I think, but then what it requires of us is actually pretty demanding. Totally. So, similar concept there. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of that idea we say, like, picking up our cross and carrying it, and what does that look like in the context of reconciliation? 
we have the pleasure of being joined by John Huckins. So before we get into specifics and kind of what you're doing, can you just introduce us to, to who you are and um, how you got here in the broadest sense? You bet. Yeah, uh, like you said, John Huckins, and I am a dad of four kiddos, um, ranging from 6 to 11, which is a big part of my life, uh, and married to my wife, Jan, uh, for 16 years, and we've been in our neighborhood here in San Diego for almost 12, which is a big part of who I am, uh, because our life uh, is, is really created to be as proximate to our streets as possible. Uh, we're part of a church community that commits to all live within proximity to each other and share a common way of life and mission. Um, and that informs how we gather and where we gather uh, as a church and our schools we're in and all that kind of thing. We're also uh, about 13 minutes from the border, so a binational reality is very real for us, binational friendships. Um, I'm the co-founding director of Global Immersion, which is a peacemaking training organization. I'm sure I'll share more about that in a bit, uh, but co-founded that uh, uh, 10 years ago now. And uh, But most of my life has been in the church in the kind of pastoral space. Um, and now most of my work is, is in the training space with lots of faith leaders who are trying to build a theology and practice for peace. And um, and I'm doing that alongside working on a PhD uh, as well. So that's mm. of what my, uh, the nuts and bolts of my life at the moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how, um, if you, I'm sure there's, there's a lot to this, but I am curious how you got into this world of peacemaking, reconciliation work, um, to being a follower of Jesus who's, committed to, to living the gospel through the, the pathway of peace, justice, ministry. Um, how, how did you end up there? Yeah. Uh, it was never, this was never one of my like, uh, career path success stories or dreams as a youth (laughs) to think about being a peacemaking trainer. I wouldn't even had any idea what that meant. Um, which I think was part of the problem, uh, that I confronted, um, Quite some time ago now, I was studying in, in Jerusalem uh, as part of my master's at Fuller, and there's a university there called Jerusalem University College. That I was, My wife and I were there for a summer and was studying the historical context of Jesus. And long story short, uh, began to build relationships with people there that were way beyond the theology and worldview that I inherited. And at that time, I'd been in kind of Christian evangelical pastor world for about a decade. And... Um, one gentleman who worked at our hotel named Milad, uh, we began to build a relationship with. And uh, one evening as we're having a conversation on the top of a hotel in the old city of Jerusalem in a Christian quarter overlooking Herod's palace, we're talking about what it's like to be young dads in the World Cup and all these different things. And um, the moment that I would describe as one of the most profound, I think I've converted most days, but one of my most profound conversions to a faith with my life uh, was when he turned and said, uh, John, why do your people think I'm a terrorist? I follow Jesus just like you do. How do you pray for your meals every morning in this hotel and go uh, look at all these holy sites and these holy rocks because I was studying the historical context of Jesus when five minutes away, your sisters and brothers in Christ are experiencing daily occupation and oppression. And 
at that point, he, you know, he discussed to me what it's like to live as a Palestinian Christian in the West Bank and just beyond that separation wall that was just outside of my sight and outside of my worldview and way beyond my theology. Um, and so he really became, you know, the rest of that trip, my wife and I would get done with class at five, get in the public bus, cross through the military checkpoints and into the West Bank to hang out with Milad and his wife, Minar, who, when we walked through the village, the streets of their village, Bethany, which is the town of Lazarus resurrection. Um, and we saw the kids come pouring out of the doors to wrap their arms around their legs because they led a nonprofit there that taught reconciliation in the midst of violence and conflict. We were confronted with a gospel that was way bigger than anything we'd inherited within U.S. American evangelicalism. And for us, it was it was a gospel that was compelling. Uh, it, it's like it turned 3D. Like, this is what it could look like. And, mm. and then forced me to ask questions like, why have I... Uh, not reflected on what a theology for peace looks like. How is it that my sisters and brothers in Christ here experience me as a U.S. American Christian more as someone who perpetuates their oppression and continues a conflict rather than someone who's working to build peace and to, to lead and participate in their liberation? Uh, so it forced me to have to go back to work theologically and practically uh, and ultimately led me to find some guides and mentors in my academic world and then practically to say, okay, I want to give my life to helping build a theology and practice for peace and invite other Christians in the United States to do the same. Wow. That's incredible. And um, such a beautiful story of being like physically in a place where, you know, people are experiencing oppression and conflict and um, having that context to build an understanding of the need for peacemaking. Um and, you know, we're well aware of the incredible work of the Global Immersion Project and so honored for you to, you know, be joining us and, and sharing about kind of the context of this mission to form peacemakers um, within this idea of beloved community. Um, and so just curious from your perspective, um, well, could you tell us more about yeah, like if you want to go into more detail about the mission and vision of, of TGIP and then um, for, you, for you personally and then as an organization, what does it look like um, for you all to build the beloved community or become a part of that? Mm. Yeah, I mean, briefly, Global Immersion, uh, our, our mission is to form people of faith to be everyday peacemakers. And you know, we talk about peace as the holistic repair of relationship. Uh, and how can that happen in our everyday lives, in our own souls, in our relationships with those around us, uh, and also on a systemic level in our world? And so, um, you know, historically, all of our work has prim- well, eighty percent of our work has been in-person training. We found that there's no better way to teach peacemaking than actually go to the center of conflict and learn from peacemakers embedded within them. So. We have this immersive uh, methodology of formation where we actually go and learn from people like Milad and Minar, who I described in the West Bank, or here on the border in Tijuana, San Diego, who are those actually living this way of life that we can learn from, especially as dominant culture people like myself, uh, to kind of shift a very paternalistic, colonialistic missions paradigm and say, I actually want to enter into those spaces as a learner rather than a savior. Um, so we've, we've created space for that to happen. And also through workshops and webinars and, and podcasts similar to, to Peace Catalyst in many ways. Um, 
So yeah, in this next season, uh, as we come out of COVID, we're actually going to be focusing much more on on faith leaders, those in spaces to actually create influence and change on a systemic level and walk with them more intimately through coaching and consulting um, and the formation of cohorts. That being said, as far as beloved community goes, um, I think pragmatically I get a vision for it in an interaction I had with some neighbors a few weeks ago and then how that might inform how we think about it organizationally. Um, you know, our, our church gathers for the last two years, we've been gathering in our yards uh, rather than indoors, but we always share Eucharist together for us. It's a very important piece of our, I, I consider it like breathing <laughs> um, to me and to us. It's coming uh, to the table to remember who we are as a community following Jesus. And uh, we invite anyone to that table with us. And uh, a few weeks ago, uh, a couple folks had started coming. One of them actually from Palestine, uh, and he's Muslim, and he's a wonderful guy. He loves Jesus like few other people I've ever met. He gets so excited when he talks about Jesus. Uh, and in his partner who grew up Southern Baptist and had lots of scars actually from his childhood, but um, they celebrated Eucharist with us. And they came up to me afterwards and said, one a Muslim, practicing Muslim said that was one of the most profound experiences of his life. And the other, a, a recovering Southern Baptist who said, I, I've walked away from faith for all the reasons many of us presume uh, conservative uh, evangelical walks away from it. But said he's, he's felt Jesus prompting him back to the table in the recent weeks. And that that moment was a moment of, of reconciliation for him. And even as I share it, I just get this like, I feel chills of like, oh, that that's what it could look like. That's what beloved community look like is a collective of misfits and labels and definitions coming around the table to say, we're in together. Like this is this Jesus we talk about beyond the dogma and doctrine and orthodoxy and cultural crap that we all are navigating. Uh, there is something compelling where I want to find myself around that table with people who look and think differently than I and say, let's experiment with this together. Um, and so I would say organizationally how that informs even how we're training uh, faith leaders specifically and then anyone that interacts with our, our programs is to create communities and cultures like that where there's capacity for curiosity to lead, um, where listening is prioritized over preaching, uh, where relationships um, are cultivated through and despite and because of our differences uh, to see that conflict is not a problem to fix. It's an opportunity for transformation if we have tools to navigate it well. And when we do, we might make it through that and see, oh, we all grew as a result. And so uh, when individuals and communities and churches can create that kind of culture, we actually trust that God is restoring things that are broken in our world um, and get to experience glimpses and actual pieces of the kingdom of God. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I thank you. I'm, I'm thinking back on what you shared your own story um, and how you use the word of like use the word inherited to describe how you currently saw a particular conflict, the theology, the worldview that you inherited hmm. um, and how it took, you know, like a, a personal encounter and experience a relationship to challenge and maybe 
that worldview or um, that outlook hadn't been, it had been kind of lying dormant. Maybe you, maybe, you know, you, you weren't even sure until something confronted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, yeah, thinking on my own experiences, I, I can completely, um, that completely resonates with me of how, mm-hmm. you know, you don't, you, maybe you don't necessarily see a belief, um, that you're holding or, you know, maybe even unhealthy bias or stereotype until it's challenged. Um, and so I don't know, I guess, I I guess I'm just thinking about that and, and your thoughts on how our, our convictions and, and what we believe and, um, yeah, how we see things informs our practice, our lived yeah. expression of faith and how, um, how in both healthy and unhealthy ways, I don't know mm-hmm. if you have any thoughts on that. No, I'm hearing you. I mean, I, we often say that we're taught to see certain people and we're taught not to see others. And so much of that comes with our inherited theology, our politic, our worldview, our understanding of race and bias and stereotype and you know there there is a journey maybe another way to think about it an everyday peacemaker's journey from uh from blindness to seeing and and not i don't want to say that in like we arrive or something but but to be unwilling to allow those blind spots to remain in the dark um and to allow others especially those on the underside of power or those displaced from the majority population um, and, and worldview to shine a light on them and for us to see that not, and this is where I think the internal work is. Cause a lot of times when people shine a light on our blind spots, our natural response is to get defensive or it's to get, or to feel shame and withdraw. Um, and, and hopefully the journey towards health and wholeness, uh, which we would call shalom or peace is inviting people into that space and not seeing it as a threat to our ego but as an invitation to be more whole. And, you know, from Milad, all those years ago, that I was feeling all of that. And I don't think I had the tools necessarily not to be offended, (laughs) but it was jarring enough. It was like an intentional disorientation that forced me to ask harder questions of my life and faith. And I think we can, the way to healing for all of us uh, is to see those blind spots being revealed as a gift. Uh, and, and to receive them and to learn from them and grow from them and confess of them and find a better way forward together. Mm-hmm. If I could just ask a follow-up question to that, is this something that we are that we should intentionally be doing to place ourselves in situations, in relationships that confront these perspectives um, and challenge us? Or is this something that, you know, just happenstance, you know, you come across... I don't know. Yeah. A person or you're, you're reading something or, I mean, yeah. Where is spiritual formation in this? How, how does this happen? practically? Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, uh, for us, we've been, we've been wrestling with that because, um, we really think the question that's often asked is what do we do? Well, what do I do to become an everyday peacemaker? What do I do to be someone who sees my blind spots? But then it almost becomes yet another task uh, on our list, or it's something that we perform our way to healing or whatever. A better question is, who must I become? Like, what's the formational journey I need to go on such that I begin to see in ways I did not see? 
Um, it also creates space for a bit more of an organic um, interaction with people who might be different than us. That, like, we don't put. I need to go hang out in this corner of the neighborhood and check these boxes off. But like, right. how am I becoming a kind of? Who are the people in my life on, on an everyday basis who are willing that I give permission to ask hard questions of me, or who are the authors that do? make me uncomfortable and how am I reading them and processing them and beginning to interrogate my own biases and blind spots, not as a task, but as an invitation to become more whole. Um, because I think what happens sometimes is we, when it's a to-do list, we can, we can become a reaction to what we once were, was, um, that like we, we become very angry in our activism and there can be holiness to our anger, but when it becomes a, a level of judgment and pointing fingers at others because they haven't done what you've done, then it becomes an unhealthy mirror of what we've been. And so the journey is to say, how am I becoming someone who, on the other end of this, story, this orientation, is more generous, more expansive, uh, more willing to be wrong, and listens longer than feels comfortable, seeks to understand rather than to be understood, you know? Those are formational questions rather than task-like questions. So, yeah, to answer your question, we have to be intentional about it, but I think we need to not turn it into another program that we achieve because mm -hmm. ultimately being a peacemaker is what we think it means to follow Jesus as a, it's a discipleship invitation. Right, mm -hmm. right. So good. I love what you're saying about listening longer than feels comfortable because I think that's hard that's easier said than done. And, um, but it's, I think is really crucial for us to, to become, you know, who we're meant to be as Christ followers, as peacemakers. Um, and yeah, you kind of, you know, just unpack this a little bit, this idea of examining and challenging unhealthy beliefs and ideologies, um, in order to imagine a vision of reconciliation in light of, these different areas of injustice and mm -hmm. like, I guess you're, you've kind of touched on this already, but how do we practically do this in our local communities? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you said the work is really about who we're becoming and not necessarily what we're doing. Um, but I guess how does sort of that peacemaking practice work in conjunction with the formation piece of that? Yeah. Um, that's, that's a great question. And I, I can't help but think I would have answered this maybe a little bit differently five years ago. And could, you know, we have four core practices that we teach, see, immerse, contend, restore, which are, are very tangible ways to live into this everyday peacemaking way of life. Um, but I think about them and talk about them a little bit differently now because I'm, I want to be careful about not just listing a bunch of things to do, especially because many of us who have gone on this journey or are in this journey of waking up to our own blind spots, as we, we talked about earlier, in our waking up, if we don't, um, usually we're blind to things because we're hurt. Um, and when we discuss, when we, when we identify that, you know, my wife often says, she's a spiritual director. She says, hurt people, hurt people. Um, and I think one of the best invitations we have is to acknowledge that we're hurt, but we're healing, that we're on some journey towards healing. Let's, let's, let's own that we're hurt. Many of us are hurt from the church or by the church or people that are part of it. And we're frustrated that they didn't, teach us more about this earlier and they've created all these systems uh, and structures that have manifest injustice, especially for friends of color and those on the margins. Um, 
they've given us a gospel that feels so transactional and incomplete. And so um, the first invitation I think we have practically on a local level is to to tend to our own wounds uh, and to remember who we are around our own identity and our vocation. I know for me, like a practice of, uh, of starting my morning, I, when I open my eyes, I say the Lord's Prayer. And sometimes I think about it, sometimes I don't. Sometimes it's just like breathing, kind of like the Eucharist is on Sundays. Uh, having having a 10 minutes to pause and sit in silence. For me, getting up before the kids, my kids, is so important uh, just to find my footing. So I'm less reactive uh, to them and to others and to the world we're in. It's so it's so rough out here. Um, so yeah, what's that look like to just pause and consider who we are and how we're entering the day? You know, uh, to to walk our streets. I walk my kids to school, and our first practice we talk about is to see the humanity and the dignity and image of God in others. How are we walking with our eyes open and uh, choosing to? to see what's beautiful and broken right on our street and in those interactions with other parents as you drop kids off or as we go to school ourselves or our workplace or whatever it is, our coffee shop. Um, and, you know, when we see beauty, how are we paying attention to it? How are we acknowledging it? Like maybe that's it. That's going to be our glimpse of God's goodness that day of, of God's restoration. Where we see brokenness, what's the next best question we need to ask? You know, when that, that store is shuttered on our corner, uh, how do I immerse? How do I move into that? Like, okay, why is that the case? And is this is this actually a situation that I need to leverage my influence to bring attention to? Um, so we can just live more present, curious lives in, internally, introspectively, and and then also how we just how we walk our streets and how we look at systems and how we interact with one another, acknowledging that we're hurt but we're healing. You know, even as we interact with people on social media or interact with loved ones around holiday tables? Are we, are we reacting or are we responding out of, uh, of who we are and, and the mission we think we're part of as God's restorative work in the world? Yeah. Yeah. And kind of going off of what, what you just introduced with, you know, how, how this is actually impacting how we interact with each other and with um, the, the systems and structures in place Um, and you know, if we're perhaps calling them out as oppressive or, or just kind of how we're, yeah, how we're tangibly interacting, um, with that formation. Um, so I know that we've introduced before, but you know, this, this series on beloved community and, um, examining movements that are angled toward restoration and healing, um, and of course embracing it's where this phrase and this meaning, this vision comes from and rooted in the civil rights movement. And so I'm, I'm curious um, if you, if you've observed in your community, um, your, your faith community, or or just, you know, where, where you're placed, if you've observed a trend of challenging the status quo or what's just kind of accepted and especially in situations where, where that has been harmful. Um, and so, yeah, wanting, wanting to know more about what that's looked like for, for you. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that people are waking up to so much of this, especially the systemic injustice that's compromised our ability to pursue beloved community. Um, I mean, I'm greatly heartened and encouraged by many of the ways that the conversations we can have especially among churches, 
ours and, and others across the country um, is much different than it was five and 10 years ago. Uh, the starting point for just an acknowledgement that things are broken and need healing. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a common language or agreement around some of those baseline realities in many evangelical and post-evangelical churches. Others have dug in their heels and said, nope, I'm not going any further. And it's, and it's become worse maybe in some ways because they see it as a threat and are reacting out of fear, um, which is, I think, what so much of the Christian polarization many of us feel uh, today. But those that are pushing forward, yeah, I mean, they're ones that are, um, are usually able to hold attention of, like we've been saying, of confronting their own theology and confronting their own place in their city, uh, where they aren't overwhelmed with shame for being on the wrong side of history or in this moment. And they're also not getting defensive and reactive uh, when they're confronted with that systemic brokenness. And they're listening to people who have been on the underside of power, um, like held under the boot of broken systems. Now, another trend I'm seeing, though, is a lot of those folks, especially people of color who have been impacted by broken systems the church has perpetuated, are growing weary of people like you and I perpetually saying, hey, what do we do next? Uh, what's what, like, help us process our pain and our, our, our sadness and our, we, we, our, our tears um, have been coming and it takes a high toll on communities of color to offer us a shoulder to cry on over and over and over. So I, another journey, I think, towards beloved community I'm seeing is the ability for us to tend to some of our own wounds, to do some of our own healing uh, and enter back into uh, into spaces pursuing systemic justice in, in, a, in a healthier, more healed way, where we're linking arms with those on the underside of power or historically on the underside of power, um, rather than either just begging for forgiveness or offering our charity. One of the best uh, paradigms I've, I've seen experienced here on the border has been moving from charity to solidarity, rather than just, oh, crap, we're on the wrong side of history. Let's just give all of our money away or give all of our energy or attention to certain issues. That's not the wrong question because it's still very paternalistic. The, the journey is actually one of solidarity. How do we link arms with those uh, on the other side of power, if you will, so we can build something better together? That's what the beloved community looks like is saying, hey, we see this now. How are we co-learning and co-facilitating that better future that we trust God is making? Uh, and that requires slowness. It requires relationships. It requires moving at the pace of trust. Uh, it doesn't happen overnight. And communities that are doing that are seeing the fruit of that gift of solidarity. Uh, but it's inconvenient, and it's and it's a harder one, especially for churches who want to just say, "Well, we got to fix this. this." Is our next program? No, it's not. It's not a program. Again, it's a way of life. And so, if that's the, what we're saying yes to, we may have to slow ourselves down. It's beautiful. I, I love that concept of moving from charity to solidarity. And that's something that comes up a lot in our Christian peace building network um, cohorts that a lot of the global immersion projects content is a part of that um, learning experience. And so, yeah, we're just so grateful for those lessons that, um, that you all provide. And um, I guess like in terms of seeing that solidarity played out and seeing that, um, those relationships that are reflective or perhaps moving towards beloved community. Are there any 
significant um, shifts that you think that you're seeing within either like the Big C Church or mm. your church community or your local community? Um, maybe something, things that have been moving more towards beloved community? And if so, like what has that looked like? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'd love to have like a really glowing answer uh, and story. But if I'm honest, it's a struggle, which I think is probably reflective of the journey towards beloved community. Like it's just not, uh, it doesn't just happen overnight and it probably doesn't happen the way we expect it to or want it to. I I think we are in a moment where it's really hard because we're confronting so much of our, especially our racist past, our commitment to nationalism over the kingdom. We're all feeling tired and weary and triggered by two years of a pandemic in the ways that's turned it, that kind of forced us to turn in on ourselves in many ways and on each other. Um, that it's, it's, it's a hard moment, I, I think. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, uh, that's something I'm observing about this. But I don't think that's a journey away from beloved community necessarily. I think it might be part of it. Um, and I certainly have glimpses of it as I especially see like churches in cities linking up together because they're realizing that the only way forward is together. And so I'm seeing churches that are like dropping their, their need to be autonomous, you know, non-denominational churches or only churches that associate with certain denominations. And they're more committed to their neighborhood and their city uh, and the plight of neighbors who they have a common heart for, despite their doctrinal differences. I am seeing that, which is wonderful uh, and necessary. Um, you know, I think we're seeing that those that are taking seriously these practices of moving towards those who look and think and believe and act differently than we do politically, or even around the pandemic, vaccines and masks, those that are having the conversations constructively around their holiday tables, had many conversations after this latest holiday, where families have actually grown together through it, Uh, not necessarily agreed with each other, but taking this on and seeing it as this is what peacemaking is going to look like right now, is finding a way around the table um, with open conversation with my family who I love despite our differences. And that's encouraging to me. That gives a glimpse of beloved community. Um, So I think there are glimpses when we have eyes to see it. I think on on a macro level, it's also a very difficult time. And I think a lot of us... um, are carrying our pain and our hurt with us. And I think it's probably more, uh, it's more, um, we're leading with our pain maybe more uh, explicitly right now than times I've seen in the past because of the situation we find ourselves in this country and the world. Wow. Yeah. Which brings us back to what you're saying about like focusing on finding healing for the wounds Mm -hmm. that we may be carrying as a really crucial piece of this process. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Earlier you, you spoke about um, how the global immersion project is, is shifting, or I don't know if you said shifting, but now focusing on, on training church leaders as well. Is that correct? Am I getting Mm -hmm. that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious about that um, because I have a couple different thoughts bouncing around, but I guess I'm thinking about how, how this is, how we got here and maybe Mm. how there's been a gap thinking about the church specifically, maybe there's been a gap 
in um, how we relate to peace and reconciliation and, you know, all of the concepts that hold up the mm-hmm. beloved community that are genuine and authentically rooted in our faith. And I, I think our witness to who Jesus is mm-hmm. and so how, how we can kind of restructure things or just integrate this into our spiritual formation, our discipleship. Um, and it certainly doesn't have to come through, you know, like a top down, like the leaders and then disseminate the knowledge. I think it, it also comes just, you know, yeah. From mm-hmm. every, as you, as the organization says, everyday peacemakers. Um, mm-hmm. But, but I am wondering about, yeah, what, how exactly you're training um, church leaders specifically so that yeah. hopefully they, yeah, this can be integrated into local communities. You bet. Yeah. So, in, and just to clarify, it won't be exclusively there. Like we, for, for anyone um, just seeking this way of life, my, uh, that we have a team of spiritual directors that actually lead daily prayers on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday mornings that anyone can just jump into because we actually think this cultivating the peace of our souls is so important uh, that, that that's, that's always available. Uh, we have our every everyday peacemaking podcast as well to, to just talk about practices of what this, this looks like for everyday folks. Um, and we're just relaunching what we call the monthly piece, which is a, a periodical. It's actually going to be more of a publication comes every month with stories and resources for everyday peacemakers. But in regards to, to faith leaders, yeah, what we, what we are committing to and what we've seen is if we don't actually, um, look at this on a systems level, the, the way that our ecclesial structures, our church structures in the United States uh, specifically, and the leaders that, that inhibit the, inhabit those positions, we don't work with that community on a deeper, slower, more sustained level. This journey of becoming rather than just to-do lists, uh, we're not convinced that we're going to see kind of th- th- this kind of systemic change that we hope for. And so, for example, I'm uh, we're starting a cohort this year, a couple different cohorts. One of them is going to focus... Uh, specifically confronting uh, patriarchy and and whiteness. That a lot of churches are structured in such a way that people like me, white men, are in control. And so when we receive feedback about our blind spots around our whiteness and our patriarchy, we get defensive or we, we get out of the game. And so we actually think that the way that those churches can pursue equity and justice and peace is through examining our own identity and vocation that informs our leadership. And so it's going to be focused on our own egos and our own identities. And we're going to identify elders who have gone before us who can help us confront that such that we find peace within ourselves and we can participate in creating peace in our own communities. Um, And to say it's not going to be, you know, a two-hour training. This is going to be an eight-month journey we take together. Um, And other cohort that's focused on a journey out of what we would consider an imperialistic Christianity that we've inherited in the United States. What's an alternative to that? A better way that we talk about with Jesus and how do we peel back the layers and, and actually cast a vision in a way of life beyond it, not just critique what was, but build something better. Uh, so there'd be another cohort for faith leaders, men and women who want to go on that journey together. Um, because we think that this that confronting, especially if, when, when, when faith leaders come to me and say, well, where do we start on like a systems level? I usually say we should start with white evangelical nationalism. <laughs> like those are the, our, let's interrogate our whiteness. Let's, let's really interrogate this, the dogma and doctrine built around evangelicalism and our orientation to our nation state. And how has that become an idol over, over and above the kingdom of God? And when we examine those, I think we have an opportunity to discover Jesus again in such a way 
that leads us to our collective liberation. Hmm. Um, well, thank you so much, John. Did you have more questions, Ali? Sorry. Gosh. Um, well, <laughs> final question. Um, <laughs> yes. And, and maybe there's not an easy answer to this, but I wonder if as you're working with communities and um, in training, if sometimes there is some like, you know, secondary trauma, people have been hurt, wounded, you're talking Mm. about, you know, healing and um, yeah, healing wounds. So I guess what, if that's a reality for you, which you can clarify if it is or if it isn't, but what, what keeps you going? What sustains you in in Mm. the work that you're doing? Yeah, that's a good question. There is, I mean, there is a, I think there's a secondary trauma, at least for many people that we interact with. I know there has been myself, both um, exposed to like systemic injustice, many people in that space that have had to live with it, deep levels of trauma. I think there's um, significant trauma from the church and so much of the evangelicalism many in our generation have inherited um, that creates an unhealthy reaction, but I think it's probably a trauma response in some ways. And so for me, I, uh, something that's, that's a big piece of my journey, even as I'm in academia, it's staying in my, the journey from head to heart is the hardest and longest and most important journey I think we can take. Uh, that we don't just think our way into a new way of being, but we feel our way into a new way of being. That we move from left brain to right brain. And for me, it's walking. Like, I, I hiked the Camino de Santiago, this ancient Christian pilgrimage in Spain and Portugal a few years ago. And it just, it reoriented how um, I see myself, how I see God, and ultimately how I show up in these kinds of spaces. That it's not just trying to help people get the right answers and fix their problems, but ultimately, what what are the practices we each need in our life to stay grounded and, and rooted and um and then invite people to walk with us in that and to actually allow people permission uh, to be involved in those those places of pain and hurt and, and walk with us there. So I think that's my greatest encouragement for those like us maybe who have experienced some of that trauma uh, to make friends with it, to identify it and make friends with it and to um, invite others to walk with us in it as well. Because if we don't, it'll either just keep manifesting itself in unhealthy ways or we'll just become reactionary versions of who we once were and that's not necessarily better news that's really helpful thank you so much john this has been such a insightful conversation and um really beautiful to hear this idea of of practicing peacemaking but ultimately becoming the people that Mm -hmm. um can facilitate peacemaking because of who we are and not just Mm -hmm. trying to um accomplish a task or take a certain action um so really really awesome thank you so much you bet honored to be with you both thanks for the invitation wow that was awesome um hearing from john and learning from him and um yeah, I'm just so grateful for his leadership and his witness as a minister of reconciliation and, um, you know, somebody who's been in this realm of peacemaking for such a long time. And, um, yeah, I just love how they're seeking to really equip people, um, both like everyday 
people, you know, like us, and then also pastors specifically to become peacemakers. Um, just so beautiful to hear that approach and, and how they sort of, um, yeah, go into peacemaking from a place that's not just outwardly focused, but it's inwardly focused as well. And um, that's actually the starting place. Yeah, it, it just seems like a marker of such health um, of an organization and uh, of a model to just acknowledge that, you know, we're all bringing things in to our, to the work that we're part of, to the reconciliation work. And that, you know, we, we first, I mean, I don't know if you would say first or if you would say concurrently, but, but we need to be um, acknowledging those acknowledging who we are and both, you know, in the positive sense, who we are, our particular skills and giftings and, and where we fit best. Um, but then at the same time, acknowledging, you know, the things that we're carrying and the, the wounds that have been inflicted upon us and the traumas that we're carrying. And so I just, yeah, I really admire um, that there is this emphasis upon healing both, you know, in the context that we're working in, you know, we're working to heal rather than to win, as you kind of said. Um, and then also within ourselves. Um, and so we were just talking briefly, uh, before, and I, I think the thing that comes to mind is, and for those who don't know, I, uh, went to, but I maybe have mentioned it on the podcast, but I, Graduated from Fuller Seminary as well, um, same as John, and although we study different things, um, back in June. And I was just struck by, through the relationships I formed at Fuller, how many people ended up there, or maybe didn't end up there because, but part of their journeys were significant spiritual traumas. Um, and so I'm, you know, there are several of my of my friends who were attached to mission organizations or large churches, both domestic overseas. Um, and, you know, for whatever reason they, yeah, they found themselves in abusive situations. I mean, I think it, it definitely exists on a spectrum. So varying levels of, uh, you know, spiritual trauma, but I mean, the, the common theme of, you know, trust, broken with leadership at the church or the organization and that really affecting, you know, the way they, they see themselves, the way they see the, their, their calling or just, you know, what, what they believe that they are to do in this world, their relationship with God and mm -hmm. others and just kind of, you know, it affecting them and affecting who they are. Mm -hmm. And um, so I just, yeah, I bring this up because I think what what John was saying about seeking shalom within ourselves and that being um, that being Im important in order to go out and then do the work of reconciliation and healing in communities, I think that's what I observed you know within with these friends is that they did have to step away and for them it was going to, a seminary and studying rather than, you know, quote, working. I mean, you know, it's, it's like hard to separate these things as if they exist in little 
compartments. But I mean, I think, yeah, for them, it did look like stepping away from that context of mission or, you know, ministry, whatever you want to call it, um, in order to then, I mean, I think they were through seminary, they were redirected, all three of them um, to different things. But um, yeah, I think, I don't know, that's what comes to mind as we were talking with him and kind of reflecting on what we're taking from our conversation. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And it really does, I think, speak to, um, yeah, like finding healing, but also, um, yeah, that might look like, you know, looking for a different type of community than the one that you came from in the sense of, um, yeah, a community that is healing, that does bring shalom into your life, that is restorative, and um, that does you know, like you said, help us to heal like our relationship with God, our relationship with others. And um, from that place, we can then, yeah, become part of that like restorative work of peacemaking, of shalom making, of of God's um, mission in the earth. And um, yeah, I think it's true that we, I think all of us carry traumas, right? And it's not not even yeah and it comes from so many different places like it can come from an educational institution it can come from our families like it can come from other relationships but how do we um yeah pursue shalom within ourselves and I love how you use the word concurrently because I do think yeah it can be concurrent like we don't have to be perfect to step into that ministry of reconciliation and I think that's a really important point to bring up too yeah absolutely is it's it's kind of part of it right um and because logically different situations and relationships will bring out a different facet of like what you know of a past experience of maybe a past trauma that then needs to be um yeah faced and um so, yeah, so I think it does kind of have to be maybe at the same time. There's only so much you can do preemptively. Um, and I think that's maybe just how healing works. Right. Well, I think that, yeah, healing can happen in the in the midst of that process. And we can become whole. We can also, mm-hmm. I think we can be whole in the midst of pain and trauma, too. Like, I think it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with us or that we're lacking if we're not fully healed at the same time and I think um but it is important that we acknowledge that like where we are and yeah acknowledge that there may be things that we need healing from and that's okay and that's good you know to um to be open about that and find a place where you can experience that healing and that wholeness um and feeling loved in the midst of that um yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, it totally makes sense. And I love that you said that um, because, yeah, I I think my personality type um, is very much like I would love to just kind of deal with things and then move past them. And for that, you know, I'm just I'm the perfectionist personality type. <laughs> um, and so I think yeah, that's definitely part of how I'm wired is, you know, must be, must achieve, um, yeah, like this perfect state before. But you're so right. It's like there's nothing, yeah, it's not like we're lacking. And then once we've healed, 
it, that's just that that makes something that's far more complex simple and um also yeah it does injustice to like who we are in the midst of pain and trauma which is obviously nothing less so thank you for saying that yeah yeah really important yeah definitely yeah and I I loved um to what John was saying about um you know kind of finding that healing within and being able to have that peace so that we're not just like reacting in situations of conflict or if we're seeking to bring transformation to a community or bring peace building to a community and help them to become peace builders themselves it's like am I coming am I approaching this particular conflict or situation or social division from a place of genuine love for the people that I'm seeking to bring along in the journey of peace building or um, to equip for peace building. It's like, if I'm not actually like approaching them from a place of love and genuine care and concern, is it, is it actually going to be working towards that beloved community or is it really building peace? Is it really fostering that shalom because I think we can sometimes become yeah I don't want to say self-righteous but like in a way it can oh yeah like oh you know we know what to do we have but it's really come like approaching it from genuine relationship and like partnership and coming alongside Mm -hmm. each other and I think yeah I think that's maybe what John was speaking to but that's how I interpreted it and um yeah, I think that's a really important thing for us as, you know, people following Jesus and seeking to be those who who build peace in our communities. Yeah. And I mean, whether, yeah, whether John is saying that or not, I think it's such an insightful application because it is similar to the peace quote. And I don't, it, it, this relates in my mind. It's like, sometimes what we're aiming for like the end which it can be good and just but I think sometimes we maybe the the end can cloud kind of where we where we are and um like the how that we get there and who we're partnering with is arguably obviously just as important and um so yeah I think I'm I'm taking something very similar from our conversation with John, which is just um, this emphasis upon authenticity and, um, you know, mm-hmm. what I'm thinking about mainly is applying it specifically within my relationship um, to God and, mm-hmm. you know, just this emphasis upon being formed, the formation um, the, the spiritual formation and, and relationship with God and with others, of course, as well, uh, that being incredibly important, um, because we, yeah, because with, without those things, without being firmly planted in our context and community and, um, and then also within who we are, our relationships to God, like how we get to where we're trying to go, like that journey then becomes something different than, I don't know. Yeah. I I hope that's making sense, but um, I guess that's kind of a a similar takeaway um, that I'm carrying with me. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think that's so important. And like you're saying that authenticity, it's like 
are we willing to go on the journey in an authentic way? And that, yeah, requires Mm. a lot of um, vulnerability and giving up things and maybe even um, going to uncomfortable places. But um, yeah, but I think it's, it's in that process even that we can find what the beloved community looks like even in the midst of that process. Great final question to think on. Yeah, definitely. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more info about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peacebuilding work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org. Thanks, everyone. Bye.